2: we're talking about operating the house of representatives with a very small number of people with 20 members and think about the illegitimacy issues that might might arise now, they're all of one party uh, the party's different than the party was in charge before they're all from one state if there're only 20 members 415 districts are unrepresented and that body, while we think, well, that's, that's a kind of continuity, there's some sort of house going along, arguably they could actually do things that would, that would really cause problems, that would, that would be seen as illegitimate, that would maybe cause us to have interbranch conflict uh, over the legitimacy of, of various actions. And so we don't think that those things can be dealt with without the constitutional amendment, uh, the quorum and the being able to replace members. They're very important because we don't want to either not have Congress or to have this attempt to, to limp around with a very small number of members of the House of Representatives acting as if they possess the powers of the, of the true House of Representatives.
1: I'm Molly Reynolds, Senior Fellow at Brookings and Senior Editor at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, May 6th, 2022. The COVID-19 pandemic, disputed elections, and threats against election officials have brought back into focus a set of questions first raised for many after the terrorist attacks of September 11th. What would happen if a large number of members of Congress were dead, incapacitated, or otherwise unable to meet to do the work of the country? A new report from the American Enterprise Institute's Continuity of Government Commission explores these questions. I sat down with Greg Jacob, a member of the commission, NAI's John Fortier, the Commission's Executive Director, to discuss the continuity challenges facing Congress and what we might do to address them. It's the Lawfare Podcast, May 6th, Ensuring the Continuity of Congress. So, Continuity of government concerns generally, continuity of Congress concerns specifically aren't new. And John, I know that you have been thinking about these issues longer and in more depth than almost anyone else in Washington. Um, So let's start with you giving us a little bit of context for this conversation. When did folks really start thinking about these issues in earnest? And what kind of was the lay of the land before 2020?
2: Well, thanks, Molly. I, I guess three uh, periods are worth noting. We are today; we have convened a, a sort of second incarnation of a continuity of government commission to really look at uh, continuity of Congress first, as well as some other issues. But you're right to note that the the first uh, incarnation of that commission was after nine eleven, and uh, there's even an earlier period which I'll mention briefly. But but that that commission after nine eleven really came about with the thought on nine 11 of what would have happened had that fourth plane, the one that, that took off uh, from Dulles, but, but had a, uh, passengers, there was a delay and passengers were able to learn about their, their fate and essentially charge the cockpit the, the plane crashed in Pennsylvania, but where was it headed? And we suspected, and then later confirmed that that plane was headed for the Capitol and the Capitol, of course, Uh, is the place where Congress sits and sometimes where they all gather together. And the wheels started turning uh, at AEI and Brookings uh, as well in those days about what would happen if uh, the worst would have happened? What would have happened if many, many members of Congress were killed? Would the institution be able to go on? Would it limp around? What were the constitutional and and legal limitations on it it getting back into into business? And I know we'll get into some of the specifics, but in particular... We started to center on this this issue of uh, the House of Representatives doesn't replace its vacancies quickly. Uh, Unlike the Senate, which has appointments, the House of Representatives uh, has to have special elections, and those special elections take time. And in that interim, uh, Congress might not have a quorum, might not be able to meet at all, or might try to meet in a kind of um, somewhat illegitimate way. So that's where we first started thinking about that issue. I do want to direct you back to a slightly earlier period because we didn't know about this when we started looking into it, but there had been a whole history of thinking about this during the cold war, a history that was really forgotten by nine 11. And that is in the, in the post-war period in the fifties and sixties, Congress had these, these conversations, these debates about its its own vulnerabilities. And the Senate uh, passed constitutional amendments three times that, that looked to do something like what we're looking to do, which is to have some way of replacing House members more quickly to fill those vacancies, so that so that Congress can operate, uh, and that never passed the House, never made it into the Constitution. But it was something that was a part of the early Cold War as well. Uh, fast forward finally to to recently, we had been thinking about uh, these issues. the The issues that we raised after nine eleven were were not really adequately dealt with by Congress. Uh, we felt like there was still a hole, but we'd also had some big developments. The pandemic, let would say, January sixth. Uh, other other issues that, that really raise the question in people's minds well what if you know what if our institutions are not fully there uh, how do we how do we get them back into place if, if some some of the worst things happen uh, and that's that's sort of the long history of how we've now come to be issuing a report on continuity of congress uh, in 2022 uh, which looks back at some issues that were, were looked at earlier by by several groups
1: Right. So, John, I want to pick up on something you mentioned right there um, that the report also highlights, which is that a number of events over the past several years really have brought these continuity concerns related to Congress back into starker relief. Could you talk a little bit more about some of the new and different challenges, including the COVID-19 pandemic, that led um, this group to sort of return to this work?
2: Well, I think at the heart of it is we want, as normal a functioning government, in terms of our key institutions at a time of crisis, as possible, and COVID nineteen, there were there were certainly debate, debates uh, between the parties, even even some pretty big divisions as to exactly what to do uh, and how to operate the institution of Congress. But I think it, it did raise the question of well, what if what if we had a terrible situation where we couldn't couldn't come to Congress to meet, couldn't come to Washington to meet, uh, whether that was transportation issues or or a pandemic or or other issues? Uh, certainly. You know, more recently, the, the, the war in Ukraine raised many peoples, reminded many people that we are still in a nuclear age and, and some of the concerns at 9-11 or maybe more particularly the Cold War, where we thought about you know, very sudden catastrophic attacks from, from outside or perhaps from, from the inside being there to, to threaten our institutions. And I guess what I would say at the end of the day is we, we still have some work to do. And we did some work earlier on presidential succession, on some other issues, but Congress, in some ways, has this big hole that that became apparent to people after World War II, when when we were in the nuclear era. Um, I think it's fair to say the framers didn't think as much about a massive attack where where lots of people in Congress were either killed or prevented from meeting. Uh, they didn't think about it in a serious way, and and we have this this constitutional problem in Congress where you really cannot get the institution back to full membership in any in any Quick time at all, and, and at the time where something terrible would happen—pandemic or attack—maybe uh, Congress would not be there, and therefore uh, maybe the presidency would would be uh, in the ascendancy. The president would rule essentially by him or herself, uh, or or the Congress wouldn't be there to really help in the solution as as it did after nine eleven in many important ways. Not only months later, but certainly even in the days after after nine eleven.
1: Thanks. John. So Greg, I want to turn to you next. Um, So the report of this um, iteration of the commission has four major recommendations. Can you kind of summarize them for us before we explore them in a little bit more detail?
3: Sure. So at a high level, the first recommendation, well, the recommendation at the highest level is we need a constitutional amendment to address these issues. And that constitutional amendment would address four separate subjects. Uh, The first would be providing for uh, the filling of vacancies in the House of Representatives that result from the death of a member. And while, as John was saying, we had the idea of a a catastrophic event that resulted in the death of a majority uh, of the House of Representatives, we recommend that there be a mechanism for temporary appointments uh, where members of the House, uh, for example, could have a list, could be a secret list of their successors uh, that in the event of their death uh, would assume their responsibilities in the House on a temporary basis until the special election that is called for by the Constitution now can be completed. Typically, those take two to four months Four months uh, really being more the average, which we thought was too long to have no House of Representatives with the required quorum. So that is the first recommendation. And in that regard, we do not limit the recommendation to actual events of mass casualty. So we we think that the mechanism of temporary replacements uh, should be in place for all deaths at all times, and there's a variety of reasons for that that we could uh, touch upon later. Second, we also address the possibility of there being uh, mass incapacity. Uh, so, for example, COVID might render a majority of the House of Representatives unable, uh, or the Senate, unable to perform their duties, but they are not dead And therefore, none of the replacement mechanisms that we have under either current law or under our temporary replacement measure would apply. And there we suggest rather than proposing a specific mechanism for how incapacity would be specifically defined and how that would be implemented, we recommend that a power be created for the House and the Senate to be able to provide and to be able to adjust the power to uh, handle mass incapacity to define when that would be triggered and under what circumstances. Third, in the event of any of these kinds of catastrophic events that we are contemplating, there is a real possibility that bridges, telecommunication systems, any number of different things might be disrupted. Um, We remember that after 9-11, as John was talking about, airplanes were grounded for a substantial period of time. So what happens while these physical infrastructure problems in the world prevent members of the House and Senate from getting to Congress? Um, and we propose that in those circumstances where it is truly physically not possible to get to Washington, D.C., that, that it be clarified that it will be constitutional under those circumstances. Obviously, there has been a debate that has been ongoing during the course of the pandemic about proxy voting. But under these circumstances of physical impossibility, we recommend uh, that the amendment provide uh, that it will be constitutional and lawful for uh, remote voting to be allowed under those circumstances. And then finally, the recommendation uh, addresses problems that tie to the opening of a new Congress. People get sworn in in Washington, D.C. Rules get adopted for the House of Representatives. The Senate is a continuing body. They have continuing rules, but the House adopts its rules uh, at the beginning of each Congress. And if you had one of these catastrophic events that disrupted the ability for those proceedings to proceed, uh, we recommend that authorizations be provided for Congress to provide Uh, for mechanisms for those events to take place in a way that would be legitimate and constitutional so that the new Congress can be sworn in and government can
1: proceed. So let's take up a couple elements of those recommendations um, in um, a little bit more detail. And so, Greg, I'd love, um, so you mentioned that one element of the commission's recommendation about being able to fill vacancies by appointment is that that should apply in the House in the case of all vacancies caused by death, not just mass vacancies. Can you talk a little bit more about the argument for taking that approach?
3: Certainly. And you you have to start with, you start with, and our analysis always started with, the real major continuity problem is in the event of mass casualty. On the Senate side, we have current mechanisms of law that allow for senators to be appointed by governors and rules for that. That can be done very quickly. But in the House, constitutionally, members right now can only be replaced via special elections which is, as I was as I mentioned before takes historically about four months to complete that and the house constitutionally can only uh, proceed as the House of Representatives if it has a quorum and if you had uh, the death of a majority of the House of Representatives, the house simply would not be able to proceed at all. you would not have constitutionally speaking a House of Representatives and so, The only way to fix that problem is to either adjust the quorum requirement so that you don't actually need a majority of the House to have survived, but rather you can proceed with some form of a rump House of Representatives. Maybe only 20 members have survived and they could function as the House. Or you need to have some mechanism that at least provides for temporary replacements up until the time that a special election can be completed. So once we determined that the the for a variety of policy reasons that the best solution is not a rump congress but rather to provide for temporary replacements until special elections can be completed. This was optimal for providing both a continuing body of the House of Representatives and and did so with representation Uh, being the, the guiding principle, which the House of Representatives is always supposed to stand for as a matter of principle. We thought this was the most representative solution rather than allowing 20 members to elect a new Speaker of the House, et cetera. Once we concluded that temporary replacements was the best policy solution for mass casualty, we then confronted the question, as you noted, should we only have this rule where members can have temporary replacements in the event of a mass catastrophe or should it be for all times? And there are several reasons that we thought all times was the better answer. One of them is simply the practical matter that, in fact, there are quite a few states that during, I believe, the Cold War era that John was referring to put mechanisms into place where they provided for, I'm not sure that it's actually consistent with the federal constitution, but provided for this kind of replacement. But those weren't really practiced uh, by uh, the representatives that were elected in those states. They didn't actually put the lists together. Having the ever-present possibility that not only in the unthinkable event that, thank God, we've never experienced, but as John noted, came very close to experiencing on 9-11, if people cognitively think, this is never really going to get invoked, then the practices of actually making the lists getting those filed, having the mechanisms in place for those to be checked and implemented. There are a variety of ways that could be done, but we thought that having it apply at all times and not just in the event of mass casualty would really help to allow uh, a practice of people complying and being used to uh, actually having these functional mechanisms in place. Because if people didn't have that and you actually had a mass casualty event, You won't actually have a functional solution if people haven't made the lists and don't have an understanding of how to implement them. Another major policy advantage to doing it in the event of all deaths, rather than only mass casualties, was that it doesn't force you to define what is the mass casualty event. What is the trigger at which point this kicks into place? And there are definitions that one could posit. I mean, you could say, for example, if the House of Representatives is unable to meet a quorum call for three consecutive days, then this can be triggered. But there are difficult definitional problems with trying to say, well, this rule will only take into, come into effect at particular times. And rather than fight that out um, and have a standard which is going to be potentially difficult to implement, it's very easy to implement a standard. Simplicity in a time of crisis that we just are used to doing this Somebody is dead, that's not a definitional problem, and we know it triggers. And then the third point is that we thought that there was a real policy advantage as well uh, to this rule of all deaths guarding against the incentive that exists right now, and that would exist even with a mass casualty rule in place, to where there's a thin balance in the House of Representatives, as there is today. Right, It's only a few members that stand between a Republican and Democratic majority. We have seen events where uh, members of the House have been targeted uh, for assassination. And it is not at all difficult to imagine somebody doing that in order to flip the balance of power in Congress. Allowing for these temporary replacements at all times means that even if you have only what you might call a minor catastrophe. Um, uh, whether that be something accidental, a plane goes down with a whole state's delegation and that happens to flip the balance in Congress, or intentional targeting of members of the House in order to flip the balance. It takes that off the table because it assures, we presume that people will pick successors who consistent with, are, are consistent with their own political philosophy uh, and that would not flip the balance of power in the House. And so we thought that that was a meaningful uh, advantage as well.
2: And maybe I could just jump in with one more point, because I, I think Greg laid out very, very well the, the reasons for us doing this. Just to be clear, our earlier incarnation of our commission after 9-11 and the, the, the Cold War period, the constitutional amendments that were passed through the Senate, they all did have some sort of triggers, catastrophic. This, this only occurred, uh, the temporary appointments only took place when there was a catastrophic event. Um, so we had to we really had to reconsider that. And then I think, Greg, for all the reasons Greg laid out, that we you know, thought about it, and we, I suppose, worried that perhaps it would be more difficult to sell to the current Congress, that you'd have to have a procedure that would operate more regularly, rather than just, uh, we hope it would never come about. But uh, for all the reasons Greg mentioned, we think that it would be more sensible to have this Uh, built into the regular fabric of Congress. Uh, So so it's there to protect against the worst, but also for some of these other definitional reasons, for some of these other smaller tragedies, which also uh, would be important. Uh, And so that's that's where we ended up after some significant debate, but I think in in a very productive way.
1: So I want to come back um, in a minute to this sort of definitional question about kind of what constitutes a mass casualty or a um, a catastrophe event. But first, John, I want to ask you about something that um, sort of Greg alluded to in the context of this temporary appointments issue. So this would uh, bring the House more in line with the Senate. But We see in the Senate that temporary appointments and special elections are not uncomplicated. So um, some states have laws requiring uh, that the appointee to a a Senate seat be of the same party as the senator previously holding um, the vacant seat. And we also see in both the House and the Senate that the scheduling of special elections can, in some cases, uh, be done strategically to try and maximize the advantages of one party over the other. Greg talked about the, trying to avoid some of this gamesmanship is one reason for having the vacancies provision apply to all vacancies occurring in the event of, of death. But um, John, could you talk generally just kind of what are the limits of federal action here? How would the progress that would be made on continuity issues by these uh, this proposed federal action be affected by, by what states do and do not do?
2: Well, I, th- I think we are aware that the states have an important role in this. The states run the, the special elections that uh, replace House members today, and and also senators today. So, not forget about that Senate special election because we have the appointment in the meantime. But uh, that does occur. Uh, so, states have important roles. Uh, you're right about the Senate. The Senate has a procedure which is not. 100% built for continuity that states actually have an option as to whether to even have the, the appointments. A few states have special elections only like the House. They have not given their governor the power to get, make an appointment. Some have it under some, some particular circumstances. And we've seen occasional states where they've gone back and forth for some political reasons on that. But we looked at it and said, look, for the most part, uh, we're, we're likely to see 90, Senate, if, that, if the entire Senate were wiped out, we're likely to see 90 senators appointed at least uh, within days, and that would keep the body going. And so a while, instead of trying to rejigger what the Senate is doing to, to meet our preferred method, we thought, well, the Senate is is mostly covered against these issues of, of mass deaths in the Senate. You know, in the House, of course, there isn't that protection uh, and you're right, there is some question about how long those special elections would take. Uh, just, just to reiterate something Greg said, we, we've, we've seen when we've looked at the last you know, 30 years of uh, special elections, when, when someone dies, that it takes over four months to how, hold those elections. And there's a good reason for that, that amount of time. You can think of a couple of them. One, in almost all states, we have primaries and general elections. We really have two elections. Uh, and then, to run an election well, you need to have a you know a good amount of time. You also have some federal law that that uh, uh, comes into play here. You have federal law about sending out ballots to overseas and military voters forty five days before an election. and all of that added together means that there's there's an amount of time that it's going to take that is that is fairly significant to hold these special elections and and one of the reasons that's significant is some of the uh, people who maybe aren't with us on this solution think well perhaps we could speed these elections up a lot and, and mandate on the states that they're able to that they, they, they should do elections very quickly there's actually a, a law which i think is states will not be able to meet which which say that that you must have elections within 45 days under, under certain catastrophic uh, circumstances unless you have a very different look to the election unless you skip a primary unless you really don't have a you know a lot of room for debate and and overseas voters, you're not going to be able to meet that deadline. So you're right that there are some state issues, that, and, and we leave those in place. If, if states underlying the, this this catastrophe are going to proceed with a special election that takes 200 days, uh, maybe we think that's probably not the greatest idea given the circumstances, but we have the, the situation covered in a sense because we have a special uh, temporary appointment holding that seat until the state can do what it, it feels comfortable doing. Uh, in holding special elections, which will more permanently replace uh, the member until the end of the term.
3: And if I can just quickly add to that, I think you know the point that John makes about that there are good reasons that it takes special elections some time. I mean, if you want to have a primary, uh, if you want to make sure that military has the capacity to vote in those elections, et cetera, it takes time to do all of those things. And so you could do some things to truncate the period of time in theory that an election we could take. You could forego a primary, you could forego military votes. We don't think that those things are optimal. But even the most optimistic folks don't think that it's really possible to conduct this process in less than, for example, a couple of months. And so the temporary replacement solution, A, avoid some of these trade-offs. You get the best of both worlds. You get all the value of a special election where you get the full process in choosing your permanent long-term representative. And you get somebody in the meantime. And whether you think the meantime can be reduced to two months or 45 days, count us skeptical. But if you can do it, great and with a good process. But you also have some period of time during which... You won't have a functional House of Representatives uh, if you don't have temporary replacements. We think in the middle of a national crisis, 45 days is too long. And so that, those are some of the key considerations that our temporary replacements proposal really solves for.
0: and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20.
1: So, Greg, one of the other things that you mentioned earlier was this question of defining a catastrophe. And the recommendations purposefully do not do that in the case of temporary replacements and, um, and vacancies. But they... In the case of temporary remote proceedings, um, the report notes, and I'm quoting here, remote voting will not be a substitute for voting on the floor, but will be used when only when members are physically unable to cast their votes in person for reasons established by the body, end quote. So you you know that the commission and many members of the House um, are concerned about the possible abuse of remote consideration, particularly remote voting. Do you have any thoughts on sort of how the House might ensure that this provision is only used in kind of a true emergency or a true catastrophe, given that's what the proposal is meant to speak to?
3: Yeah. So two, two responses. One, we were very much aware that with respect to incapacity. Which could be a real problem. I mean, if, if you really had a pandemic that you know rendered uh, more than half of the body unable to serve or something like that, that that could be an issue. But also, it could really be an issue if bridges are out and you have your representatives and people can't get there. So it, it's a similar difficulty in defining what the triggers are going to be that apply in these circumstances. And so we thought in these instances. Uh, that it was important to leave it to the house rather than have a specific line in the sand that we drew on in those two portions of the the recommendation both remote voting and mass incapacity that we thought it was important to empower the house and the senate to be able to make adjustments in part due to experience over time that these are areas where you might learn of abuses that you didn't imagine in the first instance with respect to a particular standard and might want to change it by statute. So rather than lock in to a specific constitutional standard for the on-off switch here, we thought it was important to give them the power to do this and some guidelines for when it was appropriate and not, but not to define things down to the smallest detail. On remote voting and the particular kinds of triggers that they might build in, you know, one thing might be that it, it is never part of regular order. I mean, it is, you know, has been used quite a lot uh, during the pandemic, um, and there are mixed thoughts about that up on the Hill and among thinkers generally. But, you know, it could be that it's only when the body as a whole agrees to turn on uh, the trigger in light of some defined event having occurred, you, know, you might specifically write in uh, that the body must vote that indeed our circumstances are such that we'll be unable to continue and adopt voting. Of course, the problem is that you have to turn the trigger on in the future, but you haven't, you know, if remote voting has not yet been turned on and yet the circumstances are such that people can't get to Washington to vote on it then you've got problems with people needing to, to vote in favor of the trigger having occurred. Uh, but you might build in mechanisms saying that the folks in Washington uh, who are able to make an initial call are sufficient to, to turn that trigger on um, and to start allowing for remote voting. And also that this is not something that should be you know part of the ordinary part of business, that this would not be uh, for the Day-to-day circumstances of individual members that we've seen crop up today, unless the House and the Senate, in their infinite wisdom, wanted to proceed down that path. But that was not the problem that we were seeking to address or thinking it was appropriate to address here, but rather that they could define what it meant for people truly to be physically unable to make it to Washington, D.C., and then what the mechanism should be for determining how to flip that switch on.
2: And Molly, you are the expert in Washington and really in the United States on the current state of proxy voting in, in Congress. You followed it more closely than anyone. Uh, we were, of course, aware of the, the debates uh, over whether to have proxy voting or not and the, the divisions between Republicans and Democrats. And what we tried to do is just to sort of step back and stay out of the, the particular debate and say, you know, our, our concern really is what if Congress is not there to operate when some terrible situation is happening? And our constitutional framework looks very different than it should. Uh, we don't want that to happen. And whatever your understanding of where that line is drawn, how serious the pandemic, how serious the travel problems, you know, that's something Congress can work out and we can, we can give more clarity in the Constitution. Some believe that, that it's already there. Courts have been, you know, not, not overruled what, what, what uh, had been put in place. Uh, but we just wanted to give some clarity that it was possible under some circumstance that people might agree on. And then the, the few guidelines that we gave uh, to, to how it would operate, I mean, one of them is just getting back to a core principle of ours that if anything were to be done like that, we would really want to emphasize again, just like the, the in-person operation of Congress, we want a quorum there. We want a majority of the body and we think that all sorts of issues arise if Congress really tries to operate with a smaller number. 20 members of Congress, whether that's operating in person or remotely, really raises the question of legitimacy. Uh, is it, of course, maybe a very different political setup than it was before, but also most of the country not represented? Uh, some of the worst cases where uh, perhaps that small Congress elects a new Speaker of the House who becomes President, all sorts of things that we just think the framers didn't want. The reason they put in a quorum requirement was because they believed you needed a substantial part of the country there, a majority, uh, to make it legitimate. Uh, And we want, whether remotely or in person or whatever the terrible circumstance, we would like that to be be recreated. And we don't want to have a Congress that limps around with with 20 members acting in a way that that people might really doubt the legitimacy of it and, and cause more problems down the road.
1: I, uh, I don't know if I should be honored that you referred to me as the person who's paid more attention to proxy voting than basically anyone else or not. But one thing I'll just add um, before I ask you our next question, John, is that whenever I do talk about proxy voting, one of the things I really underline is that part of why we ended up with it in the House in the first place is because the House had not previously taken seriously <laughs> some of these very questions that you are trying to tackle in this report. And that is... In certainly my ideal world, they would have answered some of these what if questions before they actually needed a way to operate potentially without as many members being physically present. But John, I do want to ask you now a little bit about the recommendation related to the opening day of the Congress. Um, and that recommendation indicates, quote, that each chamber should have a set of procedures for the opening of the Congress that could address the opening of each house to ensure that new members are sworn in and that the early activities of the chamber take place. John, can you talk a little bit in more detail about what procedural holes sort of exist currently and kind of what could new procedures for those look like in the event of a disruption?
2: Well, Molly, I think your point about um, the remote Congress uh, is, is valid, that part of the issue was that we hadn't thought about it in advance. And, and this issue of starting a new Congress is, is like that issue that we can imagine something terrible happening uh, in the period between uh, the election and the time that a new Congress is supposed to come into being. Um, and as Greg noted, Bodies have different rules. In fact, the Senate cons- considers itself a continuing body; rules stay in place. The House has to adopt rules. There, there's some some significant differences, but in each case, you have uh, new membership coming in, new members that need to be sworn in. Uh, sometimes you have leadership elections. In the case of a presidential year, you have, as we know, Congress's role uh, to be there in the in the, the counting of the uh, uh, of the electoral votes, and so we didn't. Prescribe very specific procedures, and, and again, I think both the House and the Senate would probably have some some different procedures for each of them themselves. But we did recognize this as an issue, uh, and it's it's a kind of extension of the issue of Congress really can't meet. Well, Congress can't get their meat. Uh, something is preventing them from from being there as they they come into office, and they have some powers to deal with it, perhaps. Uh, you know, things can be done remotely. Perhaps things could be done in advance prescribing that c- certain swearing in can be done in different places or at different times. Uh, so we're not being very specific about what is to be done, but we do want Congress to do that thinking about it uh, because that, that's one of the most vulnerable periods. It's vulnerable for the president on January 20th, thinking about if, what if the president isn't ready to take office for whatever reason. But it's also true of the Congress on January 3rd when they come in, uh, that if something is preventing... The bodies from doing what they normally do at the start of a Congress, uh, then uh, the, the bodies themselves might not be able to get going in a way that, that would, would be our normal constitutional system.
1: So now that we've gotten pretty far down the weeds, I want to zoom back up to uh, maybe a 30,000-foot level and come back, actually, Greg, to you, to where you first started your first answer to one of my questions, which is about the form that the commission chose to advance these recommendations. So you recommend a constitutional amendment. Can you talk about whether that was a necessary choice or sort of more a matter of preference, a strategic preference, or otherwise? And I'm asking again, in part, because we have seen the House at least make some progress on some of these issues, especially around remote proceedings, by only adopting changes to its internal rules and procedures. So kind of why a constitutional amendment?
3: Yeah. So I'll say, I think I, think I speak for everybody on the commission that we all came in with a bias against wanting to recommend a constitutional amendment. It is a substantial undertaking. Uh, Constitutional amendments do not get adopted often. Uh, We think that generally speaking, the constitutional structure and framework is uh, a work of staggering genius, and we don't typically want to mess around with it. But we really came to the conclusion um, that with respect to what I'll call problem The big problem, problem 1A, which is mass casualty in the House of Representatives, there was no alternative to a constitutional amendment that could actually solve your continuity problem. With respect to the what I'll call sort of the sub-issues of remote voting or startup of a new Congress, it may or may not be constitutional for Congress to adopt mechanisms to provide for things in those events consistent with the current constitutional text. Those are points of debate. And there we thought as a matter of good government, it would be a good idea to resolve the constitutional issues so that we're not fighting about what the constitution means in the middle of a crisis, but rather have policy solutions that we can all agree we might need in the event of that crisis. But with respect to the house of representatives as i laid out earlier uh, there are two constitutional provisions that in conjunction render it possible impossible to have a functional house of representatives following a mass casualty event for a substantial period of time first is the quorum requirement that the house of Rep- you need a quorum a majority of the House of Representatives in order to function as a House and move legislation or do any of the other uh, key functions of the House by way of uh, making laws, uh, putting out articles of impeachment. Uh, If you do not have uh, a quorum, constitutionally speaking, you cannot proceed. On the other hand, unlike the Senate, where we have the mechanism of gubernatorial appointments, The only way, constitutionally speaking, that you can replace deceased representatives is via a special election, which, as we've mentioned, four months or more is the norm. And we just think that there are practical limitations to how good a special election you could actually do, or could you even pull one off at all, faster, you know, substantially faster than that. And so, the only way to have a House of Representatives at all, which we think, as a matter of constitutional design, if you had all of the framers and you got them into a room and said, is it important to have a functioning House of Representatives in the middle of a national crisis uh, for a period of two to four months? Can you do without it? We thought all of them would answer, absolutely. We need a House of Representatives. And we think that is the, uh, the best original Uh, view of things. We think it is the best good government and policy result to things. And so the only way to do it is either to remove the quorum requirement in the event of a crisis so that you can function with less than a majority of the House, or to provide for replacing deceased members on a temporary basis up until the time that special elections occur. I mean, I suppose in theory you could go to something like gubernatorial appointments in the House as well, but that is very inconsistent with the character uh, of the House. And so having these temporary replacements and then special elections, this we thought was most consistent with the constitutional design um, and the functioning of it. But it is really the impossibility of having a functioning House of Representatives without pulling one of those two levers that brought us all to the conclusion that we had to recommend a constitutional amendment.
2: And I I don't think I can say it better than Greg and really very clear that we have some provisions which we think are clarifying, but on especially this key issue of the House of Representatives filling its vacancies and the importance of it, that the constitutional amendment is needed. And just to illustrate that, there are people who have not agreed with our, our solution and think perhaps there's a way around it without the constitutional amendment. And I think thinking about what they're trying to do is, is clarifying on you know, what the problem is. And what they, I think, would like to do is to say, well, we'll, we'll speed up the special elections. We'll, we'll make them very, very quick. So we won't be without members of Congress for a very long time. And I think Greg and I have both discussed that. Uh, we think it's still going to take quite a while. And 45 days, 60 days, the average today, over 120 days, is too long without a Congress but then secondly, this question of the of the quorum. And there certainly is a, a body of some precedent and some house rules, which maybe we'll get to, where the House thinks perhaps by rule it could define down the quorum, make it, make it lower than, than a majority of the whole. 218 today, lower than that. And they do so because of some older precedents and some rules they've passed after 9-11. But we don't, we don't think that's constitutional, but, but even if we accepted that premise, uh, the problem is we're talking about operating the House of Representatives with a very small number of people, with 20 members. And think about the illegitimacy issues that might, might arise. Uh, they're all of one party. Uh, the party's different than the party was in charge before. They're all from one state. If there are only 20 members, 415 districts are unrepresented, and that body. While we think, well, that's that's a kind of continuity. There's some sort of house going along. Arguably, they could actually do things that would that would really cause problems. That would that would be seen as illegitimate. That would maybe cause us to have interbranch conflict uh, over the legitimacy of, of various actions. And so, we don't think that those things can be dealt with without the constitutional amendment, uh, the, the quorum, and the being able to replace members. They're very important because we don't want to either not have Congress or to have this attempt to, to limp around with, with a very small number of members of the House of Representatives acting as if they possess the powers of the, of the true House of Representatives.
1: So yes, John. Let's talk about previous changes to the House rules. So up till now, um, our conversation has been focused on the recommendations that the report makes uh, that are affirmative, things that you know you want to see put into place, but. The commission also recommends rolling back one previous—I'm going to call it continuity-minded—change uh, that was adopted to the House rules in 2005. John, can you talk a little bit about what that change was? Why are you recommending uh, it be rolled back?
2: Well, I alluded to this before. There's actually the rule that was passed in 2005 and has been reenacted by Republican and Democratic Congresses since then. But but also there's there was some precedent before then, and you know the House and the Senate, that each body is right to think that it makes its own rules and it has a whole body of precedent and has done things over many, many years, and, and that outsiders' courts especially are, are really unlikely in most cases to, to step in. But I, I will say this, there, there was some precedent in both the House and the Senate, which was slightly defining down the, the quorum requirement. The quorum, we think, uh, is pretty clear that the Constitution requires you to have a majority of the whole body case of the House, 218. But if you go back to some precedents from the late 19th century where there were a few members of Congress who had died, a few vacancies, and the vote was very close, a ruling was made that maybe you could have a majority of those who were living be the quorum. And so instead of, it wasn't the same number back then, but let's say instead of 218, it would be 217 or 216 for the purposes of this vote. Uh, and so there was some some language over the years of those being sworn chosen and living, a majority of those. And while, you know, I, I think that's eating away at the real constitutional issue or the constitutional requirement that there be a majority, it isn't so significant in these cases where we're missing a few members. But when you start to think about these catastrophic events, trying to operate the House under those precedents really is is. You know, again, gets us into this, this question of legitimacy, when it's not just you need 217 instead of 218, but you have 20 members left. And you only need 11 of them to actually have a quorum to do some very, very important things. So there was this set of precedents, and then there was this more specific rule that was passed that was meant to deal with that or codify those precedents, but also deal with some, the question of incapacity. What if members you know, couldn't show up? Uh, and the rule essentially goes through a process of several days where it calls for members to show up and you know, declares there's a certain kind of catastrophe. And if, if after a certain number of days, people don't show up, essentially they're declared outside the quorum. And so the rule is really an attempt to say, we're going to have Congress no matter what number we have. If we find ourselves in a terrible situation with only 20 members of Congress alive and, and able to actually show up on the floor of Congress, we're going we're gonna to go for this process here. And Again, our philosophy is really, we believe strongly in the Framers' idea that you need a majority of, of the districts of the country represented, that, that people have to be there in significant numbers for Congress to really act. And we want to get there. And that's why we believe in the temporary appointments. We want to get back to the situation where Congress, the House in particular, is something like the real House, like a much more legitimate House, and not just some small group that's left over that we say, yes, sure, we're we're continuing with with their work. And so this rule, while it's an attempt by some, I think, to deal with the problem of continuity, to us seems to be exactly the opposite of really what we need to be doing, which is getting Congress back to a a robust membership in in a quick order to deal with the the questions of the day, not just having a a, a tiny group, a rump Congress, as, as Greg has put it, Uh, operating in a way that that would be illegitimate.
3: And just to, to briefly follow up on that, some of our guiding principles in looking at these succession issues is that in a time of crisis, it is essential that you have both clarity and legitimacy. And this rule, which, while we understand that they point to, you know, small number of questionable historical precedents we think is probably unconstitutional, uh, which leaves at least open anything done pursuant to that rule subject to serious constitutional challenge, one that we think is actually probably right. Um, So you don't want to be in the middle of a crisis where the, the body that your rules have left you with is subject to challenge in all they do. And then secondarily, um, as John was pointing out, the the policy solution, the lever that gets pulled here is a reduction of the quorum requirement rather than filling the gap between now and the special elections. And for all the reasons that we discussed before, that has its own set of legitimacy problems. So it's like a double layer of legitimacy problems, A, unconstitutional, B, wrong policy solution to potentially allow a very small number of people um, to try to pull the levers of the House of Representatives, to be able to elect a Speaker of the House who may then have a claim immediately to the presidency, just a number of problems with that. And to have those conjoined unconstitutionality and illegitimacy is not a good model for how to get through a crisis
1: legitimacy problems all the way down. I think we will leave it there for today. Uh, Thank you, Greg. Uh, Thank you, John, for joining me.
3: Thanks, Molly. Thanks, Molly.
1: The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com backslash lawfare you also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. On Friday, May 6th, Ben Wittes will sit down with Paul Rosenzweig and Justin Sherman to discuss the topic of trustworthiness in digital technology. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, and our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th, The Aftermath. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. You can also buy Lawfare swag at thelawfarestore.com. This podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Grote Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.